welcome to the editor's podcast for Practical Neurology, the issue for April 2021. I'm Phil Smith. I'm joined by Garrett Fuller and together we edit the journal and we're going to pick out a few highlights from the April issue. So uh, any particular highlights you wanted to start with, Garrett? Well, I, um, I think as always, the, the editor's choice is the thing to, to go to first. Um, we've discussed previously how tricky it is to choose the editor's choice. Um, and once again, we've been lucky enough to have quite a number of potential candidates. But um, the winner this week, as it were, is Norse. Uh, and I think um, it's not necessarily an acronym we're all familiar with. So perhaps you'd like to tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, so Norse, this is new onset refractory status epilepticus. And this is a, a great article. It's by uh, Laura Ritter and Lena Nasheff from King's College Hospital in London. And they tell us about this really devastating syndrome, which is rare, but really needs to be recognised early because the management changes uh, the moment it's recognised. Uh, the big feature being is not just a question of uh, hitting the seizures hard with the usual protocol for status epilepticus, but also considering the underlying pathogenesis, which is likely to be immune. Uh, it happens in people, young people and children, with no pre-existing relevant history, and uh, it often leads to prolonged intensive care and a significant risk of dying. And subsequently chronic epilepsy is the norm. So it's uh, an important condition. Um, the terminology has not yet been fully sorted out. So we used to think of this other acronym called FIRES, which is febrile infection related epilepsy syndrome as being the children's version of this. But now it seems that FIRES is part of NORSE. So it's part of new onset refractory status epilepticus. Um, and the other thing about this paper is it's really introducing us to the idea of a Norse uh, committee uh, that are working hard on this, bringing together specialists from around the world to discuss cases of Norse and to uh, look at better ways of recognising it and, and managing it. And actually looking through the paper, uh, one of the things that, that uh, it highlights it, that has a practical implication is that an EEG on the ITU is essential for monitoring its evolution and guiding treatment. I just wonder how many ITUs around the UK anyway have uh, ready access to EEG and EEG monitoring. So maybe better recognition of this syndrome will help to, to drive that. Um, a really good table in here, table one, which is talking about the the, the, the way that you would work through a case of Norse. Um, but overall, this is something which I think might come, um, you know, we, we, we've perhaps all seen cases of this, we've noticed the devastation that goes with it, but I, I think the, the focus on it and defining it in this way uh, is, is very helpful. So um, a, a useful paper. And I think, I mean, in addition to obviously the immunologically mediated uh, versions of this new onset refractory epilepsy um, is that, that actually sometimes it's also caused by mitochondrial disorders. And I think framing, I think the term Norse is a real, first of all, it's very easy to Google. It's not very many letters, but secondly, it, it allows you to 
um, bring together a group of patients who are very challenging clinically. You know, everyone's very concerned. The ITU physicians are concerned. The family's concerned. You're throwing the drugs at the patient to try and get on top of the seizures, and you're not quite sure what to do. And what's nice about bringing these patients together is it you can think about your options. Should we be launching into immunological therapies to try and resolve this? Should we be exploring the genetic disturbances, uh, the mitochondrial disorders, which would in turn guide which anticonvulsants you might want to use? So it's a really useful, different category for us to think about that we probably all recognize in, in our own minds, but actually so if you, having a term to draw it together has been really helpful. Right, yeah. And uh, yeah, so in general, of course, practical neurology, not too keen on abbreviations. We often ask authors to to spell these things out and to have one in the title like Norse is a, a bit unusual. Um, uh, and uh, one of the other things that that has changed just recently is the terminology for uh, anti-seizure medications it used to be called AEDs or anti-epileptic drugs or anti-convulsants, whatever. I think the ILE just recently have recognised that uh, that the treatments are treatments of seizures rather than the underlying epilepsy. So there's a drive which is which is pioneered in this paper actually to call these uh, anti-seizure medications. So uh, that, that's how we're going to be referring to it from from now on. Um, I mean, there's quite there's quite a lot of stuff in the name uh, in the way in which it helps you think about things. So very often having a useful label in the name is very helpful at making you draw things together. And in fact, I think the next paper we're going to discuss. The rhombencephalitis paper does exactly that. Uh, we're all familiar with encephalitis. We're familiar with um, a whole range of different kinds of encephalitis. But the idea of actually thinking about the rhombencephalon, uh, the cerebellum and brainstem, as being the site of infection and inflammation, draws together a different group of conditions. And um, we've got an interesting paper on that. Uh, Phil. Yeah, so this is from Claire Rice and her colleagues in Bristol. Uh, rhomboencephalitis, and she, she explains that this is synonymous with rhombencephalitis. So for the uh, uh, pedants amongst us, uh, that, that's an important distinction. And she gives us a bit of Greek as well to say uh, the rhombus is the, the Greek for the diamond-shaped structure in the brainstem. So the, the thing about rhomboencephalitis, though, it, it's, it's a, I suppose, a pathology. It's something you notice on the uh, the brain scan, and it presents differently. I mean, it's mostly encephalopathy, but might present with cranial nerve palsies as well, long tract signs and cerebellar dysfunction, of course. Uh, so it's uh, it's a syndrome founded in the particular pathology. It's got lots of uh, uh, underlying causes, and this is what the paper is mainly about, looking for uh, these this list of causes. Principally, the infections and notably listeria, uh, but also um, uh, paraneoplastic as well. And um, uh, we're, we're thinking um, particularly of uh, NMDA, uh, parainfectious, and we're thinking of uh, bicostase in particular. So, uh, and, and a host actually of neuroinflammatory disorders, including Bechet syndrome. So, you know, many different causes. And then there's a list of the mimics as well that can look like rhomboencephalitis. So this, I think, is a true sort of practical neurology paper where uh, it's looking at very much from the patient end, the, the way that they are presenting and what their initial scan shows, and then trying to work out what the likely cause is and hence uh, the, the, the best management. 
So yeah, n- n- nice clinical paper and very well illustrated as well. And and in fact, the next paper we've got is again fantastically straightforward and clinical, and deals with an unbelievably common condition: um, acute intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, discussion of the diagnosis and management um, that brought to you by Ian McGurgan and his colleagues. Now, this this is a really useful paper, and in fact, it's been made open access and has already had a substantial number of um, people reading it online. Uh, what I was unaware of was that actually even though it's not the most common cause of stroke, it does have an absolutely disproportionate impact on the number of people who actually are disabled by it. So it's got obviously a higher mortality than uh, ischemic stroke, but also has uh, a significantly higher degree of disability uh, subsequently. But it actually rather like the, the, the terms rhombencephalitis or NORSE, um, Acute intracerebral hemorrhages is just the beginning of the diagnostic process. And I think very nicely they take you through a, a sort of reasoned approach to try and work out whether your intracerebral hemorrhage is related to the commonest um, small vessel atherosclerotic disease or whether it's related to some other disorder, uh, some vascular uh, abnormality. Um, and they, they provide a very sensible and pragmatic tiered approach to try and disentangle how to assess and how to manage those patients, how to tease out who's got cerebral amyloid angiopathy, who's got uh, just conventional disease. And clearly, it's going to depend a little on um, risk factors such as hypertension, um, whether people are on uh, drugs that can make a difference, but also um, simple things like age and so on. Obviously, once once you've got a patient with acute and cerebral hemorrhage, they make the point that that you're dealing with a very dramatic neurological emergency. And they really then very carefully go through the evidence to support different approaches, controlling the blood pressure, uh, whether you should uh, reverse anticoagulation, in which case how you should do it for different agents, and whether you should contemplate surgery and so on. And the frustrating thing about this whole field is that whilst there's been substantial trials, uh, a number of trials to try and clarify what's going on uh, and what's best to do, at the moment, there remains substantial uncertainty about the best approach. So what they've ended up doing is describing a very sensible uh, um, synthesis of the current evidence as far as one can go. But also they point to the fact that there's still quite a lot of active research to try and clarify what to do. So a very nice pragmatic and practical um, approach, which hopefully will be helping um, not just neurologists, but obviously all the physicians involved in acute stroke care. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that these authors do a lot of work with stroke. I mean, the, these these are practicing uh, clinicians and and who who understand what the actual issues are. And uh, I think that their comment, for example, of the do not resuscitate orders, they, they say in practice, DNAR orders in infracranial hemorrhage often herald less active supportive care so something that uh, you know is is clearly the voice of the practicing clinician there but uh, you're right I mean they're, they're talking about it being an, a neurological emergency I mean how practice has changed since I was cha- you know, training uh, that uh, someone with an intracranial hemorrhage who would normally say you know had a devastating injury this is an our neurological emergencies and need needs uh, you know, robust approach to the management and um, the the discussion of the use of uh, blood pressure lowering treatment was interesting as well that you know one tends to think that you perhaps need a, 
uh, higher blood pressure to perfuse vessels or do you need a lower blood pressure to uh, work, stop worsening the hemorrhage? The, the jury is out actually and uh, they, they feel likely that the subsequent studies will show that there will be this uncertainty and perhaps no benefit in fact from acutely lowering blood pressure in this situation. So I think that I like it because I think it's it's clearly reflecting active practice, and that's what our, our you know that's what the journal is about. And it's also very nice when we don't know what to do that you can be confident that we don't know what to do, um, and hopefully that will help people essentially manage patients with more confidence, even if it's that, with that uncertainty. So, so that, uh, our next one actually is related to this, isn't it, Gary? This, this, um, we, we've got a paper on black blood imaging of intracranial vessel wars, and this is by uh, uh, Dr. Chaganti, uh, and the team is from New South Wales, um, both Sydney and Penrith. Um, and this, may, this game is news to me. It clearly is a, a very important uh, uh, technique, but uh, you've, you've been having a look at this paper in more detail. Right. Yeah, so... Um, as you say, this, this is one of those situations where we've got a technique that uh, is being is evolving before our very eyes. The idea is that there are various sequences that you can use on MR, which allow you to actually look at the vessel wall in a slightly different way. So you can actually look at the structure of the vessel wall. So rather than angiography, which is usually looking at the luminal structure uh, of, of a blood vessel, you're actually able to look at what's happening in the, in the wall, uh, whether it's uh, thicker or thinner, whether it's enhancing, um, on, on what uh, other uh, facets of it. And, and you think to yourself, well, all of a sudden this allows you to think about a whole range of pathologies in a different way. So you can suddenly start distinguishing between an inflammation of blood vessel wall that's producing a constriction to a spasm in a blood vessel wall. So if you want to um, distinguish between vasculitis and reversible cerebrovasal constriction, for example, you can do it. Um, equally, if you've got somebody with an unexplained stroke and you can see an atheroma, atheromatous plaque with maybe hemorrhage in it in the intracerebral vessels, you can understand uh, the pathophysiology of that stroke in a quite a different kind of way. And whilst they talk about a whole range of potential applications, they're also very cautious about saying which of the ones we know makes the difference. So if you've got a, um, uh, an aneurysm, for example, um, can you tell whether it's stable or not? And you can, if you actually can look at the thickness of the wall of the aneurysm and the way it's behaving, then you might be able to predict which ones are going to be more benign uh, or not. The, the jury's still out, but by doing this, or by having this window on this part of the um, anatomy, we have the opportunity to perhaps think about that differently. And I think uh, this is this is very much a watch this space kind of thing. And uh, hopefully people are going to become aware of it and. Uh, it's it's going to evolve and, the, and the, the evidence behind it and its best use is going to be forthcoming. So I think a really interesting paper, but one which actually alerts us to something that, you know, you, neither you or I were familiar with previously, but clearly shows something uh, particularly useful for the future. Yeah, so uncharacteristically cutting edge for, for practical neurology, but, uh, but we definitely <laughs> feel that it's got practical uh, implications and you mentioned the aneurysm I think somebody else picked up was that uh, if you got multiple aneurysms you might be able to see which one was the culprit uh, just through looking at the vessel wall but uh, uh, you know I think uh, you know I, I, I've certainly been 
caught out before now by thinking it might be cerebral um, vasculitis and yet it's reversible vasoconstriction syndrome and, and it, it would be great to have a, a test that would look at the structure of the vessel wall and, and help to, to distinguish those two. So uh, this is clearly going to come, it's going to change practice um, and uh, maybe more and more departments will be, uh, will be um, doing this. Great, okay. So the, the next one on our list was um, Menier's disease. So this is by um, a, a team from Russia and Sydney. So um, uh, Dr. Kutlobov, who from um, the uh, Bashkir State Medical University in Russia is the lead author. So Garrett, you, you've been reading Menier's disease. What, what do you think about this one? So, so this is... is in the category of articles that we have for what neurologists need to understand outside their own specialty. And I think most patients with Meniere's won't be within the neurology department. Um, and our experience of patients with Meniere's is going to be either those who are initially presenting with, well, obviously, um, episodes of vertigo and so on, and uh, intermittent dizziness. So we'll, we'll be involved in some elements of the diagnostic process, but equally, it's not such an unusual condition. It's perhaps rather rarer than we thought it was in the past, but it's not so unusual. Uh, but it also has some unusual uh, complications that you need to be aware of to try and uh, manage these patients well. It's in, one of those interesting, I mean, so much in vestibular medicine has changed with a better and clearer understanding of the pathophysiology of these various things. I mean, BPPV is obviously the commonest and in a, in a way, the simplest sort of frame shift that we've had. But in a way, the idea with Menier's disease that you have this dynamic fluid pressure abnormality in the ear, which can produce intermittent hearing disturbances, um, intermittent balance disturbances, the fullness in your ear, all of which tend to be intermittent and yet progressive is a really interesting phenomenon. And on top of that, it, it's associated with some other complications. So you get a higher proportion of horizontal canal BPPV, for example, in patients with Meniere's disease, which obviously will often leave us with some sort of diagnostic uncertainty as to, to where we are. But very often bringing these things together can be quite helpful. And I think the other, the other thing to be aware of, and, and I'm not sure how often you've seen it, Phil, is uh, something which goes by the most sensational name historically at least of uh, otolithic catastrophe of tamarcan it's been downgraded to an otolithic crisis of tamarcan and now sadly to vestibular drop attacks but um all of those are these really remarkable phenomena where people just drop down they they lose muscle tone typically with preserved consciousness but they do mention that you can sometimes lose consciousness and occurring in the context of someone with many years disease it it can avoid you um, seeking a whole range of other problems uh, and if you can just recognize this for what it is. So I think it's a really nice review, albeit not our core business, and yet something it's so helpful to know about. So yeah. a very nice paper. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and and uh, I remember actually, uh, I used to have uh, an SHO who's very keen on ophthalmology and used to refer to IIH as being glaucoma of the brain uh, and this is glaucoma of the inner ear without any doubt I think that uh, uh, and you know one of the things I picked up from it of course is that the chronically raised pressure there or intermittently raised pressure will uh, eventually damage you know the, the inner ear nerves and um, that this is what leads to the chronic problem the the, the raised pressure there but um the other thing that um, I wanted to raise was the spelling of Meniere's, which um, 
Michael Strupp, not in the in practical neurology, but I think it was in the BMJ, talked about how uh, Munier himself was born Munier without an acute accent on the first E, but changed his name after he became famous uh, to Menier. So at the time he described this, he was only Munier, and uh, therefore Michael Strupp feels that it should be called Munier's disease. And we've stuck with that and we've uh, obliterated the first acute accent um, from his name. So uh, anyway, nice, nice touch. <laughs> There's um, absolutely no pedantry in our journal. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> ah, so. Um, and so, yeah, which brings up the, the, the last of the, the papers we were going to discuss was, again, dealing with a relatively uncommon situation, but again, one that's quite helpful to, to be brought together as a sort of diagnostic category, and that's the axial myopathies. So, uh, Phil, I think you were looking at... Um, yeah, so that. this is from Vermont in the USA. This is Waka Wahid talking about axial muscle weakness. And we may think when we hear that, that we don't see much of this, but it's one of those conditions that's hiding in plain sight. It, it's right. everywhere, but it just needed someone to point out that, that, that it's uh, causing so much of a problem. Um, again, there's a bit of uh, Greek in, in here. We talk about uh, the um, kamptos meaning bent and kormos meaning tree trunk, kamptokormia. So when you have the axial weakness of the thoracic spine, it, it gives you this uh, bent forward posture. When you have it of the cervical spine, it's the dropped head. Um, the reason I'm, yeah, so, uh, I, I mentioned that is that um, I remember in one of our reviews uh, once, John Stone said, I don't want to come over all bowtie neurologists, but he was, quite, he was saying, yes, it shouldn't be quadriparesis, because that's mixing Latin and Greek, but tetraparesis. So uh, every time I read a bit of Greek translation, I, I think, think of John's comment, which is very wise. Anyway, back to axial muscle weakness. Um, so this is an important condition because it's got many, many different causes, mostly are neuromuscular myopathies, but it does include the movement disorders, including uh, multiple system atrophy and uh, uh, progressive supranuclear palsy, etc. Um, we've got a nice video examination online of how to assess the paraspinal muscles, and it's really well illustrated. But the thing that uh, shouts out in this paper is the three cases at the end. I think we've got three representative cases that tell us just why this is so important. So the first is somebody who turned out to have a uh, ryanodine receptor gene. And this is a uh, condition that, that uh, manifests in older age with the head drop and, and possibly camptochormia. And it's um, recognizing really that that syndrome could be due to uh, RYR1-related myopathy, which has an implication for the rest of the family since it's autosomal dominant. So I think that's something that we would be looking out for more. The second one, second case is somebody who turns out, this is all these spoilers for you, I'm sorry about that, turns out to have uh, primary amyloidosis uh, presenting first with axial muscle weakness. And again, that's obviously an important point to, uh, to diagnose. It's got implications for management, including checking cardiac status and so forth. And the third one is the sporadic late onset nemaly myopathy presenting as well. Now, I never realized before I read this that nemaly myopathy was so treatable, uh, but this is manageable with immunoglobulins and uh, the patient did well once um, uh, treated with this. So 
uh, I, I think this is this is a condition which we need to be recognizing more, and this is the paper that's uh, that's going to do it. So it's it's about the presentation of a condition again by clinicians uh, looking um, at many different underlying causes for it. So we've got, as always, quite a, a spectrum of other cases and things to discuss in the uh, the journal. And but I think I perhaps highlight our new format. Of questions we've obviously had to test yourselves and we've got a very interesting test yourselves that i would recommend uh, people to have a go at because uh, it, it does challenge your thinking and provides a, a beautiful education about a, a relatively uh, uncommon but important disorder um but, but this is what's been labeled as today's ward round where, where we've got a brief clinical outline of a clinical case leading up to a decision point often with an investigation or an image of some sort and at this point, there's a question, and all of this is on one side of uh, the paper, one side of the journal, and the idea is that you then read it and you think about it, and then once you've decided what you what you what you would do, um, you turn the page and you discover what the answer is, what's been considered, and uh, have a discussion of it. So hopefully, it's going to be a relatively straightforward and fairly um, rapidly rewarding format of article for people to try and have a go at. So we, we've got quite a number in the, in the uh, pipeline and we do hope people enjoy them we've certainly enjoyed um, them coming through and uh, developing this this format yeah so um, exciting new developments in in the in the way that uh, th those are being presented I think that that should be um, an attractive way to to learn as well as to uh, uh, you know, test one's one's knowledge so so I think we're going to be um, hopefully good doing our practical neurology podcast each each issue so there'll be uh, another one and we hope they'll be uh, available in time for uh, to setting for setting out the, uh, the the main the best bits really in, in each issue so um, so with that thank you very much indeed and uh, we'll uh, see you next time thank, thank you. you very much <laughs>